Did you ever see a dream walking? Well, I did. Did you ever hear a dream talking? Well, I did. Did you ever have a dream thrill you? With will you be mine? Oh, it's so grand and it's Welcome, this is William Chamberlain, and welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. Today we have an interview with director Jack Shoulder. Mr. Shoulder has directed such movies as Alone in the Dark, The Hidden, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and 1201. 1201 will be shown on Saturday, September 14, 2013 at 2 p.m. at the Main Library downtown on 615 Church Street. Now, on to the interview. We're showing your movie 1201, which you described as a sci-fi romance thriller comedy. Could you discuss what attracted you to the movie? It was a great script. Actually, what uh, what happened was I was supposed to do another movie for, for Fox, a prison drama, and for one reason or another, it, it didn't happen, and so I, I owed them a movie, and so they came back to me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing this. And the timing was, was kind of strange because my wife was scheduled to give birth to our first child about two or three weeks before the movie was supposed to start shooting. So my my first reaction was no. The people there who I you know, had a good relationship with said, why don't you read the script first? And so I, I read the script, and I loved the script. I thought it was just a terrific script. And I spoke to my wife, and she said, yeah, go ahead and do it. So that's that's why I did it. It was all, all based on the fact that uh, it was a terrific script. In the audio commentary, you stated you had a small budget on this film, and on other commentaries, you've worked on small budgets. What are the advantages of working on a small-budget movie? Well, small small budget. The budget was probably about four million dollars, which in nineteen. Well, uh, actually, I can tell you it was nineteen ninety two because that was when my son was born. You know, that was a, a small budget, but but not a really small budget. You know, people are making films now for hundred thousand dollars. But basically, I've done bigger budget movies for studios, and there's more oversight. So when you're doing a movie in this budget range, basically, if you can get it done, they're usually pretty happy as long as you don't screw it up. So there's a little less scrutiny, a little more um, room to do what you want. You stated that 1201 is one of your favorite films that you directed. Could you just go why you enjoy it so much? Well, it was a very good script. So um, basically, if you if you don't have a good script or the script has problems, then the film's going to have problems. If you got a script and you, good script, then you have a good chance to make a good movie. I also thought it had a, a, a really good cast, and that was my one, two, three, four, fifth movie that I had directed, and it was the first time that I really felt like I knew what I was doing, and so I felt that I that I did a good job directing it. Um, I liked the cast. You know, I just, it was sort of one of those things where all the elements came together in a good way. And when I watch it, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. In 1201, Alone in the Dark and By Dawn's Early Light, you worked with the actor Martin Landau. 
and I'm a big fan of his, and you stated that he was a mentor to you. Could you discuss your working relationship with him? When I did my first film, Alone in the Dark, we cast him, and I guess he was at a, a sort of a slow point in his career at that time, and he was anxious to do the film. And it was extremely stressful experience. We had about a million dollars to do that one, which wasn't enough, and it was all being shot at night, and it was the first feature, really, that New Line had done, and it wasn't very well produced, and there were all kinds of problems going on. And Marty was just very nice, very supportive, very nice. He would come on the set every day, and he'd, he'd kind of like give me like a little... 30 second back rub and he'd say hey kiddo how you doing how's it going you know and and after the film was over we stayed in touch and then when I did the hidden I at that point I I moved out from New York to LA and you know looked him up when I got out there and invited him to the screening and he he was very complimentary about the film and uh, he also got me into the actor's studio I had felt that I needed to learn more about working with actors always a very difficult aspect of directing is probably the most difficult I think is just figuring out how to really work well with actors and so uh, he's a expert actor in fact he's he's coached people like Jack Nicholson and um, you know he's 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 really good at so he he got me into the actor's studio and I went there like once a week for about six months and learned an enormous amount and then when I saw that there could be a role for him in 1201, I thought, great, let me let me cast him. And of course, I'd, I'd already cast him in um, By Dawn's Early Light. So, um, yeah, so, you know, it's always great to work with people who are of that caliber and also that you get along with. Your movie, you mentioned your movie By Dawn's Early Light, and this came out in 1990 and deals with nuclear war. And here it is, 2013, over 20 years later, and we have Korea talking about a nuclear strike. Do you ever think back on your film and think, well, gee, my movie has sadly not aged. It's still very relevant. Well, I think there was a much greater threat from the Soviet Union than there is from North uh, Korea. You know, my, my guess is, you know, if they launched a, a nuclear weapon and probably, you know, fall into the ocean about 100 miles from North Korea, you know, they're... They're, they're a lot less serious, but it doesn't really worry me. But uh, an interesting thing about By Dawn's Early Light is, is when we started the movie, it was the Soviet Union, and there was a Soviet premiere. And by the time the movie was in the final stages of post-production, it was no longer the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had fallen, and it was now just Russia. And instead of a Soviet premiere, there was the Russian president. So in fact, I had to go back... HBO wanted you know, to, to make sure that the film was still relevant, had to go back and every place where someone used the word premiere, I had to go and dub the word president in its place. So a little historical note. In the audio commentary of Alone in the Dark, you discuss how the characters become rational during the course of the movie, and this changes everything. And I noticed in by dawn's early light and the hidden rational thought comes into play. What's your interest in rational thought as a theme in movies? Uh, well, actually, I think it's more a question of um, lack of rational thought that um, we 
we see certainly, and that's certainly as true in 2013 as as it was back when I made Alone in the Dark and made made those other movies. There seems to be a great deficit of rational thinking, and 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 I, you know, I've always found it ironic that people will often do things that are not necessarily in their best interest for one reason or another, and um, uh, you know that was part of the premise of Alone in the Dark, which which I wrote, uh, you know, which is just exactly what constitutes normal and what constitutes rational, you know, and it sort of depends on your on your point of view. You know, one one could say there is an absolute, but, you know, that was kind of what I was playing around with there. As far as By Dawn's Early Light, that was really, you know, I was hired, well, I was um, offered the project and I read the script and I thought it was a really good script and I thought it was a chance to kind of do what I call the grown-up movie, you know, with a really grown-up cast and a, a, a serious subject. And, you know, so that was kind of what, what attracted me to that. I mean, yeah, you could you could say that there, there are definitely parallels, but, you know, I just chose to do um, By Dawn's Early Light because I just, again, I thought it was a really good script and I thought it was a subject that seemed like it would be really uh, interesting to, to tackle. You've had a long association with Robert Shea's production company, New Line Pictures. Could you discuss how you came to work there? Uh, New Line Cinema. Actually, after I graduated from college, I moved to New York, and I I started to get some work as a film editor. And a a friend of mine was dating a girl who was working as a temp in this small film distribution company, which was called New Line Cinema. And he said maybe they'd be interested in distributing one of your films because I'd made some films in college. And so I um, called him up and said, would you be willing to look at a few of my films? And he said, okay, and called me a few weeks later and came down and met with him. And he said, look, you know, uh, we're really not interested in picking up any more shorts at this time. You know, not not a big market for short films. And I said, well, okay. And he said, by the way, do you know anybody who can cut a trailer? from my company. And I said, yeah, me. And so he said, well, okay. And, and said, I'll, I'll hire you to cut a trailer. And so we, um, we went and rented somebody's editing room, uh, Friday afternoon after they left for the weekend. And we worked through the weekend and came out Monday morning with the trailer and we were good friends. And so basically I did, um, all the editing work, uh, whenever they needed a trailer, I would cut it whenever they had any kind of editing work. They wanted to shorten a film or anything like that. They'd call me or if they had any issues, and, and I would do it. And Plus, we were really good friends. And so at a certain point, New Line, which at that point was really in just in the distribution business, and they were distributing mainly to colleges. That was the, the, the main nature of their business. And they found that that was too limiting, wanted to get into production and said, gee, you know, if we could do a low-budget horror film, we really understand that market very well and we could we could do well. And so the next week I said, here's an idea for a low-budget horror film, which was Alone in the Dark. And they said, okay, and went ahead and made it. The next film they did was Elm Street, which was a big success. And then Wes Craven was going to do Elm Street 2, and he decided about six weeks before they were ready to start that he, he really had problems with the script, which he 
didn't write, and so they needed someone else to direct it and called me and asked if I'd do it. And um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do another horror film. I certainly wasn't sure if I wanted to do a sequel to another horror film. But a friend of mine told me that it would probably do well and, and it would give me a career, and he was absolutely right. The film ended up making a lot of money. It was the number one film of the week. And the next thing I knew, um, the phone was ringing, and I was off to... Hollywood and managed to work for the next 20 years. So uh, he was right. You said you started out cutting uh, trailers. What makes a good trailer? When you were cutting them, how would you go about your view of a good trailer? Basically, you would take a, a feature film and cut it down to about two and a half minutes. What would make a good trailer? If you know, if there was any violence, we'd put that in. If there was like one shot. Uh, that had some nudity or anything that was suggestive, we'd put that in. I mean, it's basically, it's, uh, you know, they also call them teasers, and that's basically the idea was to just try to make the film sound as enticing as possible to get someone to come in. I mean, uh, uh, you certainly know from from watching trailers, a lot of times uh, you'll go and see the movie based on the trailer, and basically everything that was good in the film was in the trailer, and then there's another... 98 minutes that aren't so good so that was you know that was kind of the 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 trick interestingly enough it was much easier to do a a good trailer for a, a bad film than a really good film you know really good films there's a kind of a subtlety that very often you can't really get in a trailer you know but a kung fu movie or an action film or sci-fi film with a lot of interesting shots you know works works much better for trailer you know and uh, you'd have to come up with a a concept which is normally what i would do you know you would come up with a phrase or a, i did one for evil dead i did the trailer for the original evil dead uh, i think my my punchline was uh, they woke up on the wrong side of the grave which i thought was kind of funny but, yeah, I mean, um, I learned a lot from cutting trailers. You know, it's kind of like taking a watch apart and then putting it back together. So, interestingly enough, my career, you know, is probably half horror, sci-fi in that genre, and the other half are thrillers and action. By doing all those trailers, you know, I really got to see how films were structured, how action was handled. Because usually if there were action sequences, they'd end up in the trailer. And so you you would take a, a five-minute action sequence and boil it down to 20 seconds or 10 seconds, you know. And, and so it was, it was very instructive. So when it came my time to start directing these kind of films, I had a pretty good idea of how they worked. You also said before making Alone in the Dark and Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, you edited the horror movie of The Burning, and you stated that you learned a lot of the tricks of the trade of making a horror movie by working on that movie, just cutting it. Could you talk about like what one of the tricks was of the trade that you learned? Yeah. Big thing that I learned, probably the number one takeaway, was building suspense. Uh, probably the the best sequence in The Burning was this, you know, it was kind of a stupid movie. It was the Weinstein brothers, you know, the, the guys who started Miramax. 
it was their first film, and basically they looked at all the horror films that were making money and kind of stole something from each one of them. So, you know, it took place in a summer camp. Uh, you know, there were some attractive campers, and th- there was a, a lunatic out in the woods and with a pair of hedge clippers, and, you know, the kids would say, gee, people are dying out in the woods. Let's go out and see what's going on. You know, it was, you know, it was fairly stupid on 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 that level. But anyway, there was a sequence where the campers all go out on a canoe trip and they see this canoe that's just sort of floating there and they paddle up to it and, and the uh, the maniac jumps up out of the canoe and, and starts killing the campers with his hedge clippers. And so when I first cut it, I... Um, you know, I had them uh, paddle up to the canoe, and then the guy jumps up, and he kills a bunch of them, and, and, and that's it. And the Weinsteins, who had never made a film, said, no, we need to draw it out. Make it take longer. You know, once they spot the canoe, you want to draw it out. So I made it longer. And they said, no, make it longer. And they kept making me make it longer and longer and longer. And every time it got longer, it got better, you know, because you you drew out the suspense. You knew something bad was going to happen. Uh, you know, it's the old Hitchcock dictum about the difference between surprise and suspense. I don't know whether you know about that one. Uh, he says, surprise is two people are having lunch and a bomb explodes under the table. And suspense is someone puts a bomb under the table and then two people sit down and have lunch. So basically what I learned was how to handle suspense and how to build a scare I had written the script for Alone in the Dark, and they they were not able to raise the money, and so then I went off and I edited The Burning, and then after I finished that, New Line was able to come up with the money, and I said, you know what, I, I want to do a rewrite on the script, and I, I rewrote the script based on um, the things that I had learned from cutting The Burning, and I think, you know, it made it a, a better film and I'm, when it first came out it didn't do all that well but I'm actually happy to say that it seems to be um, a real favorite now when when I talk to people you know everyone always talks about Alone in the Dark and it is a kind of favorite of mine you were mentioning Alone in the Dark and you were, said that uh, you were influenced by the writings of R.D. Lang and when you made Nightmare on Elm Street 2 were you influenced by like the interpretation of Dreams by Sigmund Freud or other writers um, well, I certainly read all that stuff. You know, I'd read Young, and I mean, I was an English major in college. I I, I never took a film course in my life. So, uh, you know, I was pretty well read, and I, um, I was certainly aware of that. But as far as Elm Street 2 goes, basically the movie was ready to go, and suddenly there was no director. And so I came in, and it wasn't like I had a lot to do with reshaping the script. You know, I did a little bit, but, uh, you know, mostly, you know, I had been somewhat involved with the original Nightmare just because uh, of my relationship with with New Line. You know, whenever they they had a movie, they'd always call me in and ask my opinion of the editing. And, you know, uh, so I, you know, I'd I'd seen it a number of times and I'd I'd read the script before they started making it. And and so I, you know, I was pretty familiar with the original. And actually, I didn't particularly see it as as a classic the way people, you know, see it now. You know, it just just seemed to me uh, it was a good idea. And 
uh, there was an interesting concept there. And then the the great thing that West did was he he created the Freddy character, and usually the the monster, like in the Burning, it was just some faceless guy, you know, who jumped out and killed people. Whereas Freddy really had a personality. And then what he did to make it better was he cast a really good actor in Robert England. And when I got hired to do Elm Street 2, they were not planning to bring him back. They were just going to use a stuntman. And I said, you know, I think that's a really big mistake. I, I think part of the reason the movie's successful was because of Robert England. You know, he was asking for more money. They didn't want to pay him more money. Eventually, they finally came to terms with him, which was very fortunate for me, and especially was fortunate for them, because what happened was when Elm Street 2 came out, they realized that Freddy was the main draw for the film. And, you know, if you look at all the rest of them, it's, you know, it's all about Freddy. So that's kind of where that was at. But I mean, uh, as far as any of the, uh, you know, the interpretation of dreams or any of that, that was all pr pretty much in, in the writer's hand and not in mine. At the end of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, you used the recording, Did You Ever See a Dream Walking by Bing Crosby? And that was just a perfect choice. Was that your idea to use that song? That was actually, um, I think it was Bob Shea's idea. Um, um, you know, but it seemed like, like a good idea and they were willing to, to, to pay for it. Bob was sort of the last generation to grow up listening to the radio. I mean, when he was a little kid... It was before television, you know, just, just before television. And so he used to listen to the radio a lot, you know, which is a lot of it's in your imagination. But whereas I don't really have much of a recollection of listening to, to radio, I remember seeing um, TV when I was about five years old for the first time. But so those those old songs are more in, in Bob's wheelhouse. But, uh, you know, film is very much of a collaborative medium. Uh, you know, pe people would, would like to think that it all comes out of the director's head, but the director's really the filter or the point of view. But, you know, a lot of my best ideas came from other people, and then I'll, of course, take credit. So that was Bob's idea. I hope you're not tired of talking about no, that. No, not at all. In the documentary Never Sleep Again, which is the history of the Nightmare Elm sure. movies, um, Nightmare Elm Street 2 is infamous for its gay subtext. While making the movie, no one was aware of this. And my question is, how long after the movie was released was this brought to your attention? Well, as soon as the movie came out, um, Sarah Risher, who is the head of production, called me up the next or. Uh, a few days later, the Village Voice came out with a review. You know, and it, it was a weekly, so it didn't come out the the day the, the movie opened. But you know, it came out that week, and she read me this review, and we all thought it was really funny because it had never occurred to any of us. You know, if you go back and 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 you look at it, you know, they're they're absolutely right. The writer was happily married, and I was happily, you know, heterosexually single at that point. You know, but I lived in the West Village, which is sort of the main gay area, and it was right before AIDS struck. And so, you know, you'd walk down the street and, you know, there'd be, you know, there was a very, very heavy gay scene that was sort of part of part of my everyday life, you know, and I found it kind of um, amusing, some of it. And uh, so I was happy to sort of parody it a little bit. 
But I mean, there are other other sequences like the whole thing in the shower. You know, when when you look at it, and you know, that was certainly pretty uh, gay S and M. Uh, and you know, some of the lines which which never occurred to us. You know, Freddie's inside of me. Uh, you know, which I guess uh, you know you can you can look at however you want, but. It just never occurred to any of us when we were doing it. I mean, certainly there was that that whole gay thing that was going on, but, you know, it just seemed part of, you know, teen angst about sexual identity. Uh, That's kind of how I saw it. Uh, My personal favorite is the cereal box at the beginning of the movie. It says, Fu Man Chews. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Well, you know, I was able to uh, inject a little bit of myself into the movie. Uh, you know, some of it was kind of silly, you know, the exploding canary and, and all that. But, uh, you know, it was uh, basically, I had six weeks to prep a film that had 200 special effects, none of which I had the slightest idea how to do. Uh, you know, I, I was just trying to keep my head above water. You know, I worked my, my butt off to get myself ready. And, you know, by the time we we were ready to start shooting, I was pretty much up to speed and it was kind of like, you know, stage fright, you know, until the actor gets shoved out on the stage and then everything's fine. So that's 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 pretty much what what happened with that. You know, I don't think it's my best film by by any stretch of the imagination. I think it it turned out pretty well and I yeah, you know, there's certainly touches of myself a certain kind of cynicism that that I have that sort of comes out in in the movie and 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 uh, you know part of that cynicism you know has to do with the whole so-called gay themes because it was a certain cynicism about you know like I said that was my life you know I'd go out at night and walk on the street and I'd see people you know gay couples all over the place so you directed the hidden and on the audio commentary you said was a B movie that rises above a B movie could you discuss what you mean by this and how you go about achieving it. I mean, basically, it was an action thriller, a very clever one, and it was, again, it was a very well-written script. I think if someone else had directed it, who was less sort of humanistic, let's say, than I am, I mean, I I never thought I'd end up directing horror films or, you know, films films in that genre, you know, I, I was always a very sort of literary type, and I actually, one of my earliest short films was an adaptation of a a verse play by William Butler Yeats, which was probably one of the worst ideas anybody's ever had for a movie. But, you know, that's that's kind of where I was at. I was sort of a very kind of literary guy. So uh, so the idea that I'd be standing out in the street at 3 o'clock in the morning telling people how to kill each other is, you know, a little bit ironic. When you direct a film... Ideally, if you're a good director, you're not directing the plot, you're directing the, 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 the theme or the spine that's under the plot. You know, like you can say, Citizen Kane, it's about this guy called Kane and he's blah, 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 blah. Well, that's the plot. But really what it's all about is it's the loss of innocence, right? I mean, that's, that's what Rosebud is. So if you look at that movie, everything ties into that. And that's really what Wells was directing. And so I was looking for the theme or the spine of The Hidden, and I, I felt that what it was, was was what it meant to be human, that that's really what it was all about. 
So you have all this mayhem and all this, you know, funny stuff and, and all this weird stuff, but everything in there really was in service of what it means to be human. You have a, a bad alien comes to Earth and tries to see what what it means to be a bad human. You have a good alien comes to Earth and he's trying to see what it means to be a good human. But So a lot of what that did was it pulled together a lot of the elements of the film, and I did do some rewriting on it to try to flesh that out. The, the little girl was not part of the script that I had, but I felt that I needed to have a strong relationship between the detective and his wife, and I felt the easiest way to do that would be to give him a, a kid so that they could have something to relate to, and then if the good alien had a kid back where he came from and the kid was killed by the bad alien, that would give him a sympathy toward the little girl. And so all of those things added up. There were all of these scenes where the alien is looking in the mirror, both the bad alien and the Kyle McLaughlin character are looking in the mirror because it's like, well, who am I now? What is this? You know, because that's not really me. That's the suit that I'm wearing. That's the, the human that I'm wearing. But then it's, you know, under, underneath that is how does one behave? And so I think by taking that particular route and that particular point of view on the material, so that, that kind of gave me a, um, uh, a window into it. And I think what it did was it put a whole other level in underneath and it gave it a kind of a unity. And I think it deepened it. And I think part of the reason that people respond so well to the film is because there's more going on than just what seems to be going on. Oh, um, on the audio commentary, um, Tim Hunter was um, moderating it. Is that the Tim Hunter who directed The River's Edge and Ted? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I was just a big fan of his films. And yeah. the f- final question, you currently direct the motion picture and television program at Western Carolina University. Could you talk a little bit about your position and just how you came to get it? Well, I was given the opportunity to start a film program from scratch. I had never taken a film course in my life. I'd not really taught any. I'd never taught a film course. You know, I'd sort of talked about film. But I I always kind of had this bent to sort of talk about what I was doing and think about what I was doing. So it seemed to be a, an interesting challenge. I'd been a musician. Well, you know, once you're a musician, you're always a musician. You know, my, my original goal was I was going to be a, a professional classical trumpet player and I was you know very serious about that and and you know music's a very big part of my life and pretty much all almost all all musicians teach and that's a big part of being a, a musician is teaching passing it on you know uh, Bach taught Beethoven taught Haydn taught you know so it you know it seemed like a, a noble thing to do and of course I had no idea how to teach I but I I did have an idea of what I thought students needed to learn because, you know, I think that there are some film programs that are good and some film programs that are probably a little bit of a waste of time. And I felt that if I was going to do one, that it had to be one that I felt had some value for the students. And basically, it's really about two things. One is it's all about story. Whatever you do, it's all about story. You know, I've 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 been fortunate. I've been able to work with some really good people, both actors and technicians. And, you know, they all understand the story. You know, if 
uh, I've worked with sound mixers who've gotten Academy Awards. They really understand the story. Uh, that's part of what makes them so good at what they do. Um, so I felt that that was paramount. You know, so if you teach a course in cinematography, um, I don't I don't teach that, but I have someone on our faculty who does. So, okay, here's how you work the camera. Here's what you do with the lights. Now, how do you use that to tell a story or to enhance the story? So that was that was one thing. The other the other thing is that um, everybody who teaches in my program has a similar background to mine in that they had a career in film before they started teaching so that they bring a understanding of what the the real world of filmmaking is all about and i i felt that that was also important and you know the program is now 9 years old and um it's been it's been very successful it's it's tripled in size and it's still a little on the small side compared to you know some of the bigger schools but uh, everyone who t- who teaches is uh, is very strong and the students have graduated and I'm surprised at how many of them are actually making a living doing this or you know doing doing well we haven't been around long enough for anybody to really break out but you know I feel that the program has 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 been a success and I actually feel like I'm doing some good, you know, so uh, that's not a bad thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, a part of my, my deal is that if, if I, I can take a sabbatical to direct the movie. So I'm trying to find something to direct. You know, when I was building the program, really uh, pretty hard for me to step away. But at, at, at this point, things are, you know, pretty much set, and it's mostly just sort of maintenance I I would like to direct another movie, and hopefully I'll get that chance. I would like to thank Jack Shoulder for taking the time to do the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street to see Mr. Shoulder's movie 1201 on September 14th, 2013 at 2 p.m. And the music is Did You Ever See a Dream Walking, sung by Bing Crosby. Did you ever see a dream walking? Well, I did. Did you ever hear a dream talking? Well, I did. Did you ever have a dream thrill you? When will you be mine? Oh, it's so grand, and it's too, too divine.